there's this idea, this is idyllic notion, and, and it's really of, of what natural means. And there's a reason why marketing and brand, you know, branding people put, you know, on, on the front of a milk bottle, you know, cows grazing in a field with the sun in the background and lots of grass around. But the reality is far from that reality. If you think about chicken production and what they do to artificially create different environments for, for the chicken to maximize particular yields, where do you draw the line of what is natural and what is not? And I would argue that most of our food systems say, if you're consuming any type of big food is not natural in the same way that this is not natural. Welcome back to another episode of the Plant-Based News Podcast. Today, I'm joined by David Booker, founder and CEO of food tech startup Change Foods, precision fermentation tech company creating animal-free dairy products. David is a passionate food industry professional with expertise in alternative proteins. With close to a decade of experience in food innovation, David has been at the forefront of creating sustainable, ethical and healthy alternatives to animal-based foods. He previously worked in the aerospace industry, where he was engineering leader at Boeing for over 13 years, alongside also holding a commercial pilot license with airplanes. His personal mission to create a more sustainable, ethical and innovative food system is what led him to his career change in 2016, when he became founding director of Food Frontier, an innovative think tank and industry accelerator for alternative proteins in Australia and New Zealand. In 2018, he also became the COO of Hemp Food Startup and the APAC manager for a US plant-based meat company. David was motivated to launch Change Foods after becoming vegan overnight in 2017. He started studying the food system and the animal agriculture industry, and from his experience in aerospace and engineering, he knew he had to create something that revolutionized the food industry. Change Foods is at the forefront of using precision fermentation to create animal-free dairy products that taste and perform exactly like traditional dairy, without any of the negative environmental impacts. David's work at Change Foods has become globally recognized and the company has been named one of the top food tech startups to watch by Forbes. I'm so excited to have David on the show this week to hear his insights and experiences. As always, if you like this episode, don't forget to comment, like and share. And if you're on Apple Podcasts, please leave us a review. It really helps get the message out there. Let's get to the episode. Thanks so much for joining us on the PBN Podcast, David. Uh, I'm really excited to sit down with you and hear all about your company and all this amazing technology. Uh, yeah, great to have you here. Thanks very much for having me, Robbie. Pleasure speaking today. What do you think an exciting future looks like? Well, I don't know. Maybe it has spaceships or time travel or people on Mars. What if there was something bigger than Mars? Bigger than Mars? What is it? It starts with cheese. Ooh, I love cheese. Everyone loves cheese. It just tastes so good. But there's a problem with cheese. So before we talk about all your achievements in recent years, let's go back in time and tell us how you discovered plant-based. Where did that all begin for you? Well, um, it was actually through conversations and from speaking with some really interesting people. Um, one of them actually being Thomas King here in Melbourne, Australia, where I'm originally um, born and raised. Basically, I was a an aerospace engineer for many years at Boeing, which I'll get into a little bit later, um, but had some really great and interesting conversations with Thomas um, out for dinner one time. And I was pretty enlightened by the inefficiencies in how our food was produced and just the cognitive dissonance. You know, growing up with food, actually, my parents both had cafes and restaurants my whole life. I even ran a cafe at one point in time. So pretty close to food and always being a foodie and enjoying my food, but really sort of 
I always just had that veil across my my eyes and around, you know, how meat and protein is actually produced. And once I really sort of dove into it and someone really explained it clearly to, to me, I said, oh, well, that warrants some further investigation. And of course, being an engineer and everything else, I, I love data and information. So I researched quite heavily for a, a bit and was pretty shocked from what I found. So that's pretty much where it all started. That was about seven years ago now. And what were some of the most shocking things that you discovered? Like what, what was that trigger point that oh, you know, when you were so reading many. or watching? Yeah, what were, the, what were the biggest things that you that you really yeah. surprised you? I mean, a lot of people really always had that sort of cowspiracy moment or there's usually some type of documentary that sort of tipped them over the edge. But for me, it was a, a culmination of so many different inputs and sources. Um, I was shocked on multiple levels, actually just from a Really, from a, an animal treatment point of view, I guess, I just didn't realize it was as bad as it was. So that pretty much shocked me. Um, but also just at the engineering me, once again, looking at the inefficiencies and in conversion of like simple things like feedstock, the feedstock conversion ratio into final protein that we consume. That was pretty alarming to me as well, right? From you know anywhere from 25 to 30 calories input for one calorie output for beef, for example. Um, and of course, the statistics vary depending on location and many different factors, but nonetheless, really, really inefficient sort of conversion ratio and uh, versus sort of chicken on the on the most efficient of the of the main meats end of the spectrum, which was around eight to one. And that still was really alarming to me. I was like, wow, so we're spending so many of Earth's precious resources in terms of what could be used to feed people. Yeah, we're redirecting it to animals to feed then a smaller percent of people that can actually afford it. So it was just a complete redistribution issue. And of course, then my systems thinking mind came into play and I just got really excited by the potential to disrupt and change the way that that system works and operates to make it vastly more efficient. And that's where it all started. I just found a new passion and it took off from there. Amazing. Yeah. Well, I'm interested in that because obviously you know, aerospace engineering is a very specific career <laughs> and then the food <laughs> industry and food technology is also very different though. I can see how the engineering part, you know, cause obviously food is made up of molecules and in a way, you know, you're building and creating huge, uh, machinery, um, food in a way is a form of machinery, isn't it? It's something right. that engineers and shapes our bodies and, and our culture. But yeah, how did how did you make that switch? Like, how did the <laughs> did you have to retrain? Like, what what was the yeah the process? yeah? I mean, it's a, it's a long story, but I'll try and cut it short. Um, but really, that's the most common question I ask is I get asked is how do you go from aerospace to food? But surprisingly, the more I answer it, the more I discover the parallels between that transition and the carryover of all the skill sets and knowledge that I garnered in an industry for over fifteen years um, into sort of the new food tech challenge, if you like. And really, the big part of that is the systems engineering approach. In aerospace, you know, for decades, really, the quest is how do you create new materials to make them lighter or more efficient or stronger? You know, so you're investing a lot of energy and R&D, research and development, into creating new materials, high technology materials. But then the quest is how do you create a manufacturing supply chain from those new materials? How do you scale them? How do you, first of all, it's driven by quality. And then it's driven by cost. How do you bring down the cost dramatically of those exotic materials into something that's actually commercially viable in a highly regulated, fine, small margin industry? And surprisingly, what's happening in food now with the introduction of more and more technologies into food is exactly the same plight. How do you instead take high R&D materials? It's now high R&D ingredients, such as what we're working on, which is in the dairy sector and the dairy space. So how do you create, first of all, those new materials through research and development? 
but they they start very expensive. And how do you create a whole supply chain to scale and industrialize those exotic high R&D ingredients and bring them to the public in a regulated fashion as well? So a lot of that sort of skill set and knowledge just crossed over really naturally in terms of my thinking around how do we actually do this? How do we, first of all, do and, and solve the, tech, the technical challenge, but more so how do we actually bring it to market and commoditize the cost as quickly as possible? Because that's where we're going to get the impact that we're all looking for. And so my engineering mind, I guess, went into you know into motion once I really made those connections. But I also knew that I had a gap in food in terms of the food industry. And so I actually helped start a not-for-profit organization with Thomas King, who I mentioned earlier, who really inspired me, called Food Frontier, which is a Australia and New Zealand's leading think tank and industry accelerator for alternative proteins. And that was back in um, early 2017. And I'm still a board member of that organization today. It's doing fantastic research and work and is really a think tank that's driving the discussion forward and creating an ecosystem to help create First of all, in the industrial sector, if you like, for these new innovations, but also connect and expand the presence of alternative proteins as a whole category to help also bring Australia on the map and really accelerate that and break down barriers and help the emergence of a whole new manufacturing sector, which could also be really complementary to what we already do in Australia. And so that really was the foundational, I guess, platform that allowed me to learn about the technologies, travel the world, many different founders and visit a lot of different companies and really look at the gaps in the market and what were the problems that people were looking to solve. So that's where it all was seeded, if you like, back in 2017, when the term plant-based didn't even really exist in Australia. Um, And so it's come a long way, which is, you know, I've been there from the very start and seen that transformation. But then I became the COO of a hemp food startup. You know, I left um, Boeing, uh, my, my previous employer in the aerospace sector and made a whole career change into the food industry. And that was with a startup. So it allowed me to really manage the whole supply chain, manufacturing, and really cut my teeth into a whole new food sector. And that involved really everything right back from the raw materials, right through to getting on shelf with the largest retailers in Australia and managing that whole process in between. So that was a a fantastic, you know, um, stepping stone, if you like, to transition into the food sector. And then I also helped a US plant-based meat company called Hungry Planet, which has got some fantastic plant-based range of products with some fantastic founders, which I met during my journey through Food Frontier. I'm Todd and Jodie Boyman, who, you know, I'm just huge fans of and and love the products and help them really sort of um, set up and and expand some of the operations in the APAC region. But then it was in 2019 when I really figured out what I wanted to do with uh, Change Foods, and that's when it was founded. That was in the precision fermentation space, which really excited me the most out of everyone. That's where this team comes in. They have a big idea. We're using the smallest of things, microbes, to help solve a big problem by making cheese without the animal. You can do that? Yep. The secret's in the ingredients. We can make them identical. Same taste, texture, and nutrition. This is cheese for our future. Cheese that requires about 100 times less land, 10 times less water, and five times less energy. All made possible through the process of precision fermentation. Yeah, and that's uh, where we find ourselves today, which is a, a very interesting sector. And a lot of people don't really understand or know or maybe feel a little bit scared <laughs> what precision fermentation <laughs> is. Uh, this whole idea of working with microbes, you know, microbes are always seen as perhaps something a bit negative or something to fear. People think about pathogens and bacterium and things like that that might harm us. But you know, before we talk about precision fermentation, you know, how did the idea for Change Foods come about? Precision fermentation is a very specific form of food technology, and you could have ended up in, you know, could have ended up in plants, right. pure plant-based. You know, why, why did you pick uh, precision fermentation, and how did you end up creating Change Foods? 
Sure. Well, it was really upon my analysis of looking at all the different technologies and looking at the gaps uh, from what I mentioned earlier, particularly with my sort of knowledge that I garnered um, through Food Frontier and learning about how to create an ecosystem Mm. effectively. And what I was seeing happening, because really it was in 2019, so it was already a few years after the sort of plant-based products started to really sort of take off, I guess, globally and also in Australia. And we had a few local startups starting and emerging. And really it was my critique and sort of observations of what's happening in the market, right? What's happening in the retail sector? What's happening in supermarkets? How are consumers relating to it? What are the issues being confronted with? And I could see that there was such a saturation, if you like, already by 2019 of fantastic plant-based products, of which I was working for Hungry Planet, a really great product range. But what I was seeing is that we just didn't need another one, (laughs) as far as I was concerned. What really drove me the most is how do we affect mass change? That's what really inspires me the most. I, I mean, I love supplying to the vegan and vegetarian consumer base, but I was seeing issues with penetrating through to that. So if you think about the disruption of innovation curve, there's that chasm, which is around the 14 to 15% market share spot, which is sort of the early adopters. You get the innovators, which are the first um, adopters, and then you get the early adopters, but how do you penetrate into the early mass market? That's what interested me the most. And that's where I felt like there was the biggest shortcoming with plant-based products, simply because there's more education to be done. I think it will organically get there, but I really was interested to how do we bring a product to the market that can accelerate that tremendously. And so to me, it was about producing an identical product because that's what people are ultimately looking for. There's people already transitioning, if you like, or aware of changing their diets for many multiple reasons. It could be for health. It could be for environment. It could be for the animals. That's fantastic. And that will organically continue to to grow. Whereas what I really wanted to solve for is that early mass market, which are looking for an identical product. And I think that's what appealed to me around the cellular agriculture side. But what I liked about precision fermentation particularly when you think about cellular technologies, is that it's been used industrially for over 40 years. And so I love the fact that there was already an industrial scalable pathway to market. There was technology and infrastructure already producing products that consumers are eating, by the way, and including in cheese and dairy. So in fact, 90% of cheeses made worldwide today are made using an enzyme to curdle the milk. So when you think about pouring milk into a giant vat, you add a an enzyme called chymosin, which is from typically from a calf's stomach. But since the early 1990s, it's been produced synthetically using this exact same technology, precision fermentation. So people are already consuming this technology in their food, most times without knowing it. And it's also used for a lot of flavorings, high value ingredients, antioxidants, vanillin, there's extracts, there's lots of different things that this technology is already being used within our food system. But it's also used to do things such as create insulin to treat diabetes. There's many industrialized examples where it's clearly proven to be safe. Consumers are already, I guess, consuming outputs from this production process. So I really love the fact that we can get an identical product into the market, but with a far quicker pathway from... I guess the um, from what I was observing with the cell-based meats, which I'm a huge um, fan of as well, but I could just see how there's a few more hurdles and challenges to solve for in terms of pricing and equipment and industrializing that particular technology. So that's where it all started. And I just felt like in the Venn diagram of things, that precision fermentation was right in the middle. Mm, it had an industrial backbone, exactly. Mm. And it was producing an identical product, which within cheese and dairy in particular you need because there's no plant-based proteins that can unlock the functionality gaps that exist within cheese today. So 
I'm a big consumer of alternative cheeses, but there is clearly a big performance gap. Whereas plant-based meats also are getting pretty close. I mean, you can mimic meats pretty effectively in certain products, but there's still a huge void, I think, in plant-based cheeses. And I think that's also why there was also a, there was a, a gap, if you like, that this technology can also solve for, which excited me the most. Precision fermentation allows us to create the same milk proteins that you'd find from a cow, but without the cow involved at all. This is similar to the way we use microbes to brew beer, but instead, we're brewing dairy. This is a big deal. It's good news for cows, good news for our trees and forests, and good news for our planet. So what do you think? Does that sound like an exciting future? Oh yeah, I love cheese. Yeah, we do too. So um, it'd be good to establish the difference between a plant-based cheese, something like a real plant-based cheese, like a fermented cheese, like a cashew milk cheese, and a cheese made using the precision fermentation process. What is happening on in these two products? Because obviously on the plant-based side, you are getting the fermentation yeah, from the uh, bacteria. That is, um, or is it fungus or bacteria? Bacteria. It depends. Yeah. I mean, depends. It, both. <laughs> exactly. Right, okay. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, so you exactly. do get those great flavors, but you don't get the performance that you get from a dairy cheese with the stringiness, right? And you don't get that umami, I guess, that people call it. Do you want to talk a little bit about like what the two differences are and what's going on on a sort of chemical level for the geeks out there? <laughs> yeah, 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 absolutely. No, no, it's, it's absolutely worth explaining what this actually means. What is precision fermentation? And of course, I had to learn this myself, right? <laughs> many, many years ago. But really, fermentation has been used for centuries, if not millennia, to produce many products like beer, wine, cheese itself, um, tofu, etc. But that's what we call traditional fermentation. So it's taking a solid mass, you know, and there's usually wild microorganisms, whether it be bacteria or yeast that do something and transform that product. So you think about milk, we add the enzyme that I mentioned before, chymosin, suddenly that triggers a fermentation process by which there's then enzymes and different interactions occurring within the structures in milk that break it down into its constituent components. And then you can create fantastic food products like yogurt and cheese and so forth. So we're taking the principle of fermentation, but we're bringing it into, I guess, the 21st century by leveraging other technology such as biotechnology so gene editing and so forth so what that means is rather than ferment something with wild type organisms we can take organisms that have been worked on for many many years to optimize certain features so we can create um, for example a yeast and we can extract that yeast that whilst it's fermenting it can produce a particular product of interest so in our case for cheese the key protein you're looking for is casein and casein is the key protein that you find within dairy and cheese that allows it to do what it does the gooiness the textural properties of cheese the stretchability of cheese all of these things when you think about pizza cheese that you're looking for that really comes from casein okay and so we can instruct by looking at basically the genes from a cow that tell the cow to create casein we can take that same gene and insert it into yeast. So effectively it becomes like a miniature cow. <laughs> so when it's fermenting, it's doing it's producing its own natural proteins. How does that actually work though? How does how does the actual micro because you you mentioned the DNA from a cow. How do you get the microbe to accept that DNA? Is that through is that with CRISPR? How is it done? No, so CRISPR is a gene editing tool, but really over many years of biotechnology, there's been um, lots of science to show that basically organisms can take foreign DNA. 
So there's very standard protocols and tools used within biotechnology, whereby you have um, basically circular rings of DNA called plasmids that you can actually, and a lot of them are like little toolkits. So you can take a plasmid, which are already being created, and you can plug in different genes into it, right? So you can take a plasmid, which is a circular piece of DNA. You can plug in whatever gene you like into that plasmid. So it's basically like a kit. And then you use different techniques for that plasmid to be, I guess, absorbed, if you like, into the the organic or natural DNA of that particular cell, um, whether it be a yeast cell or bacterial cell, that particular organism. So then it becomes inherent in that particular DNA of that organism. How does the cell know what to I'm getting real deep here into DNA. (laughs) But how does the cell know what to do with that DNA? Because obviously you're introducing that piece of DNA. And of course, as as those that, that paid attention in biology, organisms have very long DNA, you know, the the, DNA, the double helix has a lot of DNA information in it, thousands and thousands and thousands of pieces of DNA code. How does the organism that you're introducing that specific piece of DNA know where to integrate that DNA? Does it sort of just absorb and then it, and it just sort of jumps into life? Like, how does it, uh, it may yeah, seem like a dumb yeah. question, but... No, I mean, and I'm not, by the way, a molecular biologist. So even I have limitations in my understanding when it comes to this. So this would be something I'd deflect to my chief scientist officer. (laughs) However, from my understanding is that, yes, it does actually just form part of its intrinsic DNA as, as an entirety. And this particular plasmid, it would make multiple copies within the organism, and then it will just synthesize and so it's basically genes so genes turn things on and turn things off right so this is as it's metabolizing so as the yeast or the microorganism is living and eating and consuming sugars and metabolizing and doing its all of its organic bioprocessing well because it's got this dna as part of its unique code it's also doing whatever that gene instructs it to do so if there's a gene that's saying oh express casein then as it's metabolizing doing its thing it's just expressing casein as it's doing everything else it's like code it's like computer code isn't it it's exactly like computer (laughs) code exactly right and it's really fascinating. I mean, this is something that's been discovered around just how you can introduce plasmids into 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 organ, microorganisms and take advantage of that. So really what we're doing is coding in a particular sequence that we would like that organism to produce. And so we're taking advantage, and that's once again been used for many different purposes. So the quest is then how do you maximize the creation of that particular compound that you're looking for, which is where the term precision fermentation comes in. Because you want to precisely produce that one compound because you're looking for one particular compound or maybe two, depending on how you, you know, what things you code into that plasmid. And then you don't really want anything else. All you're looking for is harvesting and maximizing, in our case, casein. So we want to maximize the amount of casein produced and we want to purify that then after fermentation away from the rest of the organism and everything else. So people always ask me, you know, is this a GMO product? And that's a very difficult question to answer because it does come down to the regulators and how they would then classify these particular ingredients. But my simple response is, well, it's GMO derived. There's no hiding that. We are obviously using genetic engineering to modify the organism. However, the end product, the output, the casein itself is just casein. (laughs) There's no genetic modification of the casein. It's just 
protein. What we're then doing is purifying that protein away from the organism, and that's discarded. The organism is effectively killed, if you like. It's it's um, denatured as part of the harvesting process of that protein, and then you're discarding the rest of the ferment, the broth, everything else, and all you're left with is that one particular compound that you're looking for. That's why it's precision fermentation as opposed to traditional fermentation where you basically just take everything that comes along and you consume it as and it is. It. It's so interesting, um, but obviously, you know, all this is being done with a desire to sell a consumer product and right. consumer awareness and understanding of this product is incredibly poor at the moment. Um, most people who've heard about this technology use the word like lab grown, uh, mainly because the way the media refers to it and talks about exactly. it. Obviously, it's not grown, <laughs> not grown in a lab. When I first encountered Change Foods, it was through your CMO, Irina, and uh, she educated me a lot about how it's actually more to do with a brewing process, a lot like how beer is made, rather than, you know, something that's grown in a lab. But how do we educate people? Because obviously you're dealing with a couple of things here. You're dealing with something which people perceive is made in a lab. It's artificial. It's not natural. And then we're also dealing with the, the negative press around GMO. So, so there are many people who are terrified of GMO. They think that it's going to cause harm and ill health to them and their families. So how do we get over the hurdle of you know trying to get past these two challenges when it comes to perception? Yeah, and there's many different components to that answer. And there's many different lenses to think about in response to that. But certainly one of them is how, well, how do we educate the consumer? The reality is that once again, this is already being used in food. A lot of people don't actually know what they're consuming into that level of detail already. So one question, if not paradox, is, well, we want to have to be transparent, of course, but at the same time, half the products that we're eating off the supermarket shelf are ultra processed and are made from bioengineered ingredients, but yet we don't question how is that chemical that I don't understand produced, <laughs> right? Is that safe for me? So I would just rebut, first of all, by saying, well, we're just using the exact same thing that's already used in your, many of your food products. And I would argue that ours is even healthier than half of the chemicals that you're, you're consuming on a regular basis in everyday life. So first of all, as long as it's We've got this rational perception of what we should be eating and nutrition and what's good for us. But at the same time, food is an extremely emotional experience. It's embedded within culture. We think of a diet, we want to eat healthily, then we eat junk food the next day because it's emotional. Our relationship with food is emotional. And this is where it comes back to just get a great product that tastes freaking delicious. People are eating food, junk food, not because it's healthy and because it's good for you, because it tastes delicious and it's serving a need. It's serving an emotional need for nutrition, right? Whether it's a salty craving, it's a fat craving, it's these sort of primal, if you like, um, I guess, factors of how we interact. So there's a lot of psychology behind it, which is where Arena in particular got really fascinated in nutrition and food is, is sort of the psychology behind the consumer and like what actually drives people to eat what they're eating. And so you can throw a lot of science, you can throw a lot of health studies and clinical trials at people at the end of the day, and it will just go over their head because there's so much conflicting data in today's world around what is good, what is bad. And I could easily show you and manipulate data to in, in every particular spectrum, which is what the big food companies and lobby groups always do. <laughs> they will fund studies, they will create conflict for the very purpose of confusing the consumer. So my question is, speak to the truth, point to the science, show that it's safe, work with the regulators, obviously get it grass approved, work with the FDA, show that it's safe, show that you've got a consistently reliable, safe production method and process, prove that it's identical to the actual thing that people are already consuming. All we're changing is the process. The product is the same. And I think really that's what you've got to rest on in terms of the consumer's understanding. We're producing what you've already eaten 
you know, since you were born, if you've consumed milk and dairy, all we're doing it is producing it in a, in a different way. And once people sort of get over that point, I think it makes it, it breaks down that barrier. And when then once they try it and see that it well, tastes identical, in fact, it's delicious, <laughs> you know, it's giving me what I'm looking for, but without the lactose, without the cholesterol, without the downsides of dairy, but giving me what I'm looking for in a delicious piece of cheese, which is not a health food. Let's face it. Cheese is a luxury item. It's, it's full of fat. It's, it's, it's an indulgent experience. And we can deliver on all of that. And so there's a multi-pronged approach of how you deal with that. Yes, you have to educate consumers. You have to be transparent. Absolutely. And every company in this space needs to do that. But at the same time, a majority of the consumers will not care. <laughs> a majority of the consumers will be driven by cost, tasting delicious, and getting it into their mouths and into the market and availability, all of those things. So you've got, to, you've got to have a multi-pronged approach in terms of how you deal with this. You've got to use the right language, first of all, and not let the media grab hold of it. You know, um, it's really disappointing how every article, and it's really to create reactions and to create, you know, a clickbait and all of those things. And that's why it's lab-grown has sort of stuck into the lexicon. But the reality is all food starts in a lab. All we're doing is using a giant fermenter as you would in beer making, and rather than brewing beer, it's brewing milk, <laughs> effectively, or casein in our case. So think of like a, a brewery in the future where you just have giant tanks and it's producing a particular compound that you're looking for and then you just harvest that and off you go and you're creating the identical product that we've been consuming safely for many years. So as long as you can prove that it's safe and there's a lot of tests and trials and that's part of the, the food safety process, then really that's what's paramount to showing that it's actually safe to consume from the consumer point of view. But then there's all the emotional, psychoanalytical side of food which we can really, it's, it's around getting it to consumers to try and, you know, working with people and putting and um, sort of reducing that fear factor by saying that, well, we're already eating this in our food today. A major international report from Rethink X predicts that making real dairy without cows will wipe out the global dairy industry by 2030. Once it's cheaper than dairy from cows, Big companies like Nestle could switch their milk powder supply to the animal-free version. And our milk powder exports could be doomed. Rethink X are saying in the US dairy industry, something like a 90% reduction in their cow numbers within a decade. How realistic do you think that report is and how worried should New Zealand farmers be in terms of them having a sustainable career? I think they should be really worried. I think the last thing the dairy industry should be worried about is a 10% greenhouse gas emissions by 2030. I think they've got to worry about will they even be around in 2030. We're going to see the most consequential shift in food production systems that we've ever seen in the past 10,000 years. Cow as a technology will become redundant. This new technology is exponentially more efficient and that means that we're seeing a huge, incredible shift, the biggest one in humankind in the way food will be produced. So let's just compare the two. We've got milk that comes from a cow. You mentioned um, casein, which is a form of protein. It also comes with fats uh, and also many other things we don't want in our bodies like hormones and bovine viruses, bacterium, goodness knows what else that comes with it when it comes from a cow. Obviously, it's pasteurized, which allegedly kills most of the uh, you know, pathogens or any issues with the milk. But people then consume it and it causes and it can cause widespread health problems. The health part of these products is called into question because obviously casein 
has been seen uh, as an issue for people, you know, especially the amount of casein people consume. How similar is this product? Because obviously, you know, as you mentioned, fat, saturated fat is dietary fat and dietary cholesterol is an issue for people's health. Will this product be healthier, you know, because obviously you know, compared to dairy, will it, will it be a more healthy product? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question because there's obviously a lot of data to also show, you know, some studies show that casein is bad for you or it could be cancer creating and so forth. But at the same time, there's not much data to support what's actually driving that. And it could be the hormones. It could be the growth factors that come along with the way that that casein was originally consumed in those trials, for for example. And so there's a lot of work to be done. But what excites me the most is the fact that our job is to recreate the good parts of dairy because that's what people are looking for. But whilst we have the, the chance to recreate dairy, why not make it better, right? So that's always the, dri- the driving impetus behind everything we do is, you know, well, do we need lactose? No, actually we don't, right? So, well, then why use it, right? Because the lactose intolerance is a, huge, is a huge issue. It all really comes down from the fact that we're the only species that drinks another species' milk. And so the consequences that come along with that it's, it's, it's an unnatural adaptation to our own human body and digestion. And so there will always be issues with us producing an identical other species products. You know, um, it's a little bit too foreign and freaky for people to think the fact that we could even create a human breast milk casein, for example. Well, but I was um, going to ask you that. Why wouldn't yeah, we? Well, it's possible. Why wouldn't we make cheese and dairy products from the human genome rather than cows? Like why? Yeah. why have we? Why well, that's we a great opportunity. That's a great mm. opportunity for the future and where this innovation can bring the consumer. I just don't think the consumers are there today because Not there's already yet. a lot of these issues that you already brought up, you know, around the technology and is this safe and everything else. So the last thing we really want to do is create further and confound those other barriers and really bring it down to just producing what people are already consuming comfortable with just by a different you know we could have you know the 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 supermarket of the future could have cow cheese human cheese kangaroo cheese monkey cheese really all these different animals when that you know animal free cheese obviously that's right, exactly. And the good thing is, you know, our human casein is made for humans. So there's there's less there's no allergenicity. So allergenicity is is a, is a result of of another species uh, casein, for example. And so you know, allergenicity we can also work on. We can reduce and make it more hypoallergenic for people to consume, and also remove once again all of the unwanted things that come along with traditional milk processing, because we're not starting with milk. We're building the Lego blocks of dairy that we can reassemble into any which way we want into the future. So in manufacturing, we we would call this an additive manufacturing approach. Previously, it's all been reductive manufacturing, right? So you're starting with milk, you're breaking it down into something else. Then you're you're breaking that down into something else and you're breaking that down into something else to end up with these products. Because You really want to fractionate milk. If you look at what the dairy industry is doing today, they fractionate everything down to its constituent smallest components that's cost affordable or affordable to do. And then they reassemble it to keep consistency the same. Consistency is one of the biggest things within the food industry that I've noticed coming from aerospace that's really important, right? So there's a lot of variability because of inputs. You get different types of milk and seasonality and what the cow's eating and different flavors that come along. And so what they want to do is break it down into its constituent parts, then add a little bit more protein, a little bit more fat, a little bit to balance and make sure you have a consistent cheese product year round as close as possible. So it's quite funny when you think of it because now what we're doing is actually just starting from the bottom up. So rather than starting with milk and breaking it down, 
well, actually, we can create even more granular, go to a much finer granule. So not only are we working on casein, but there's four different types of casein. And then within those four different types of casein, there's multiple variants of casein. We can go right down to the bottom of that and create those variants of a particular type of a subcasein and build really the code for many different food products that then we can reassemble. And actually, we can start exploring new combinations of caseins with different flavoring compounds and different fat sources to actually create much better products that taste better are more nutritious can carry for example prebiotics or probiotics we could bring in fiber we can bring in all of these things to actually i guess create a new foundation of what we call dairy and make it a lot healthier and better for people to consume and that's what excites me the most actually is that real way of exploring new combinations that we've never been able to do from a reductive manufacturing approach. So um, by spinning it to this additive manufacturing approach. What do you say to those that say it's not natural? Well, (laughs) very simply, most of the food we eat today is not natural. (laughs) So, you know, and and there's this idea, this is idyllic notion and, and it's really of of what natural means and there's a reason why marketing and brand you know, branding people put you know on, on the front of a milk bottle you know cows grazing in a field with the sun in the background and lots of grass around but the reality is far from that truth uh, from that reality and it's it's very vastly different to that and you know there's 200 to 250 antibiotics used in the milk production system for example dairy and uh, beef, sorry, uh, industries. There's, there's multiple layers of what you would call unnatural. If you think about chicken production and you know um, what they do to artificially create different environments for, for the chicken to maximize particular yields or uh, inducing far faster growth rates than otherwise would be naturally occurring. So where do you draw the line of what is natural and what is not? And I would argue that most of our food systems say, if you're consuming any type of big food, is not natural in the same way that this is not natural (laughs) and so um you know we're we're far removed from um, the idyllic notion that we have in our minds of what constitutes natural food in saying that i'm a big believer and advocate of a whole food plant-based diet that you can grow organically in your own garden and do all of that the reality is that most people are time poor we're feeding a lot of people and that's increasing and so big food will always be part of our journey. And I'm hugely uh, a big advocate of democratizing food, localizing production, all of that. But at the same time, we also need to be realistic and pragmatic that that's not going to cut it. You know, um, regenerative agriculture, I'm a huge fan of. I think it's got a huge, massive potential both on um, animal, for, for animals and for, and for plants and feeding people. But also we need to think about how do we transition to that, you know, in, as a future state. And I think, you know, most of the growth is really coming out of Africa and Asia over the next 20 years. We need to feed billions of people in a far more efficient and less resource intensive manner. And we have to do this regardless of whether or not it's natural. And I think, you know, we need to bring people along that journey to understand that. So one other uh, big question that we will get is, is it vegan? Uh, and now the definition of vegan is, uh, you know, the the cessation of use of animals in entertainment, in food, in uh, fashion, primarily because of the, co- the the suffering that is caused when animals are used and consumed. This is what is going to be quite difficult to get for people to get their head around because you're having products that are on a molecular level identical to cow's dairy to cow milk, but it isn't from a cow. So there is a there's a bit of a mental <laughs> gymnastics that has to go on for some people who don't understand the biology and the science. And who are going to ask, is it vegan? So what do you say? <laughs> sure. Yeah. And I, I define veganism in a similar way, but I would just keep it even simpler that there's no exploitation of an animal. 
at all. And there is no exploitation of an animal at all in our process, right? So there is no animal used. It's actually synthetically derived. So, um, there, I mean, originally when the original uh, bovine DNA genome was sequenced, I think back in 2008, they would have had to take a sample from a, a cow to be able to sequence the DNA. But since then it's been published the genes are well known and publicized. So we can take those gene codes and synthetically create basically and uh, those genes, which we then use in our organisms. So it's all synthetic, if you like, in terms of the, the need for any animal in this system. It's a little bit different from cell-based or cultivated meats, which do actually require a small biopsy from an animal. It's, it's, it's very minimal intervention. It's only the size of basically a small, the small fingernail on, on the tip of your finger. So it's quite a small biopsy. And that is used to create hundreds, if not uh, thousands of kilograms of that particular meat. Whereas this is quite different. We don't need to start with that. It's all synthetic. And so there is no animal. So from that point of view, I would say it, it is vegan. Will we call it and market it as vegan? No. Uh, and there's a reason for that. It's because of those associations that the average consumer has. And we don't want to confuse the consumer. So by seeing a vegan label on a product, they would automatically assume it's dairy-free. And of course, ours isn't dairy-free. It's identical to dairy. So if you're buying a product called vegan because you have a dairy allergen, we certainly wouldn't want to confuse consumers that would then pick up our product and then have a reaction because the allergen is the same as they would typically get from from traditional dairy so from a labeling and marketing point of view we don't use the term vegan which is where the term animal free dairy sort of really emerged to sort of show that it doesn't use an animal but really at the end of the day it's producing an identical product so it would be animal free x animal free you know, milk or protein or casein, etc. So it's saying what it is and what it isn't at the same time. It's a, it's a totally new category of food. And I think this is what um, the consumer will have to understand. And this is where getting over that whole hill of is it natural? Is it safe? I think those hurdles are, you know, something that we will have to continue to have conversations about, you know, plant-based news. We are plant-based news, but we are also a vegan organization. And our mission is to see a food system that is free from animal use. Myself and Klaus, we're both huge advocates of precision fermentation, talk about it often, trying our best to shape people's un awareness and understanding of it, particularly around the semantics of it. We, you know, whenever we write on PBN, we never say lab grown. We always say animal free um, food, or we'll say it's fermented, or we'll, we'll try and, you know, explain the process similarly to what you mentioned about beer. So I think the media plays a huge role in Absolutely. that and and you know we're, we're doing our best not to create clickbait headlines and we really just want to support and educate if only more media was like pbn yes, but uh, absolutely but we Thank can you. <laughs> we can we can continue to push people and remind people what needs to be done but what are some of the challenges that you face other than sort of you know consumer perception what are the other things that you face you know struggles well, that you face as an organization technical challenges in terms of with any new technology in terms of scaling and bringing it to market so they're more of the, the technical so there's obviously the uh, the regulatory challenges there's the the, the lobby and anti-kickback challenges associated with disrupting a incumbent massive industry that's always uh, something to be uh, to conscious of um, but there's also just the technical challenges of bringing a new technology at mass scale into the market right so how it's a cross-pollination of different industries so typically um, 
this precision fermentation technology stems from very high value ingredients. So therefore, you, you only need one fermenter to produce quite a lot of product, whether except for maybe insulin, which um, is more from the pharmaceutical. So it either comes from pharmaceutical or it comes from very high value ingredients. Whereas what we're trying to do now is actually create uh, macronutrients from it. So you need huge amounts of the same um, process and infrastructure, um, but to produce far greater outputs. And so that presents its own challenge in some technical challenges. But I guess, once again, from an engineering and systems approach point of view, we need far greater capacity of fermentation infrastructure worldwide to be able to support this. We've actually made a pretty pivotal announcement at the end of last year that we're building a huge um, commercial manufacturing facility in the UAE, out of all places, in Abu Dhabi, for many other reasons, for food security, which we can talk about briefly as well. But there's some really great um, reasons why we we chose Abu Dhabi in the UAE to build our first commercial manufacturing facility, but that will have initially 1.2 million litres of, of fermentation capacity, which will allow us to produce tonnes of output of product and also then help us with the cost challenges to come down the cost curve of this high-value ingredient initially, because we want it to be commoditized in as quickly as possible to really then make that mass disruption that we're all looking for within the dairy industry. So that's really critical for us. And I guess that poses its own challenges, right? So we need to build a facility, we need to build new infrastructure, and we need to scale and get that to market. So I think for anyone in the precision fermentation space, at least capacity is one of the biggest challenges that we're all contending with right now. Industrial dairying is this country's biggest polluter. They are the most inefficient food production system on the planet. There must be an alternative. We need a whole new way of thinking. Do you think we're putting our future food security at risk? Mm. I don't want to <laughs> It's incredibly powerful and it's incredibly devious. New Zealand, five million cows are a lot more important than five million people. Water is going to be the next gold, and if we don't look after the water, then all of us will perish. The dairy industry are just shuffling the chairs on the Titanic, and we need a new boat. If you consider we're on this little ball, this little beautiful planet of ours, we have a choice as to what sort of impact we're going to make. For those out there that are keen to break away from their current jobs or companies and have got ideas and dreams of their own food tech company, what advice have you got for those aspiring entrepreneurs who are are keen to change the world using food? Oh, look, there's just so much opportunity. I think that's the, it's a message of hope, I would say, and and, um, inspiration, hopefully, um, that as with me, I think once you choose a problem, Choose one problem and just do it well. And I think a lot of people want to try and do side hustles or do things on the side. And my advice would be not to do that. I think it's far more impactful um, and exciting for you to really find and spend some time doing some research, find a problem that is difficult to solve that you think you are well, well geared to solve, and then throw everything at it and go for it. And you will find the most incredible support network. As long as you are dedicated to it, as long as it excites you, as long as there's this engine behind that's that's propelling this forward, my experience has been that you will just get so much overwhelming support and you will bring people along on that journey with you. 
And there's just so much to work on within the food spectrum. Food is global. It's local at the same time. Food is different. Cheese is, if you think about cheese, I mean, there's just so much variation of cheese, all from one ingredient, from milk, but then it produces thousands of different types of cheese. You could take that same approach for meats and uh, and fats and even materials. I mean, so I was really considering doing um, cellular leather production, actually. That was my close second to uh, animal-free dairy, which really appealed to me and excited me a lot as well. I think there's a huge, tremendous amount of potential in producing uh, new materi- materials to move away from animal-derived materials. But really choose something that excites you, that's associated with what moves and motivates you because that will weather you through the storm there'll be difficult times there'll be really challenging times but what will get you through is your dedication and your excitement to support something that really moves and reverberates with you as a person but then just throw everything at it surround yourself with people i think one thing that worked really well in my early days is that i I brought on board a technical advisory board and a commercial advisory board because I knew I couldn't solve for everything and I needed a sounding board around me to help bounce ideas off and guide me down sensible decisions and use, I guess, the power of wisdom to help make really sensible decisions in setting up a brand new uh, initiative. Um, So you surround yourself with people, find something that you really love and go for it at 200%. Why does the world need uh, animal-free dairy? Why, Why does it matter? What's the most important things about it that matters to us today? Because we did a double the amount of um, protein we're producing over the next 30 years, okay? We're already using... So when you think about cheese as a product in itself, it's the third largest greenhouse gas emitter of all food products behind beef and lamb per kilogram. It's by far the largest freshwater consuming product of all food products by over a factor of two, <laughs> even over, um, over beef and lamb. So there's a huge amount of intensity of, of resources that are required to create. I mean, forget about even the animal suffering that's involved in the industry. Let's just put that aside for one moment, even though it's just vastly cruel, <laughs> in my opinion, in terms of um, the whole dairy industry itself. But when you think about just the inefficiencies, it's, it's required because we're using so much of the earth's resources to create a product which is going to continue to expand incredibly with the growth of Asia and Africa. So, and there's reasons for that. There's a dietary shift that's occurring. So they're increasing their, they're moving more from an Eastern diet to a Western diet, unfortunately, and getting um, higher amounts of animal-based products into their diets. And, but also because of the growing middle class and affluence, then that's also driving uh, and supporting um, very high growth in, in dairy um, consumption as well. So whilst they're the smallest consumer per capita of dairy today, they're the highest growth um, per capita um, consumer of dairy as well. So fast forward in 20 years, there's going to be a huge amount of new dairy uh, outputs required to support the growth within Asia alone. So we've got to find really much better ways to produce this um, dairy into the future with far less resources without the animals involved and for the benefit of not only the planet but for people Um, because we can nourish way more people we can lift people out of famine we can bring using sensible new technologies to do that and that's what excites me the most and that's why precision fermentation is so critically needed where do the animals fit in david with regards to your work do you feel personally motivated to see an end to the dairy industry because of what happens to, to animals. Do you want to just talk a little bit about like what actually happens to cows for those that don't know and the experience that they have to endure on a daily basis really in this industry? Yeah, it's, it's really horrific to be honest. And this is probably one of my biggest 
drivers and motivators in terms of why I'm doing what I'm doing. But it's really just the treatment of animals in that system is just abhorrent. And to think that we were part of a generation that contributed and not only contributed to it, but is trying to accelerate it is just really disturbing to me when we don't need to. <laughs> I think that's that's the absurdity of it is that we've got a technology that doesn't rely us to do that. Why would we do that? Um, and really when you think about, I mean, the biggest shock to a lot of people is they don't even realise that cows have to be impregnated over and over again to, to create milk. And I think that that just goes to show the cognitive dissonance that most consumers actually have. They don't actually make that connection. So not only are we then, you know, um, inseminating um, cows um, to impregnate them on a yearly basis to keep um, producing milk but then of course there's that treatment of pulling away their calves usually within um, the second or third day with them screaming in agony and all of the the, the trauma that comes with losing a loved uh, child which really wants them and wants their milk and of course they put um, spikes on their udders to prevent them from even suckling the milk as well um, because that's losing production yield so it's a very draconian industrialized process which really um, first of all creates a lot of they're deeply traumatized year after year and so it's you know there's this normatic traumatic experience that they're going through from a bodily point of view and then of course there's just the industry the industrial processing of the milk itself right so there's um, they're often put into 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 stalls which are pretty pretty abhorrent um, and and treated very very poorly in terms of um, just the way that they're harvesting the milk on a, on a daily basis, multi- multiple times a day. They have uh, chronic mastitis, which is obviously um, contaminating the milk itself. Um, they're given many antibiotics to stop a lot of the, the bad uh, microbes from entering into the, the drinkable milk system. And so they're pumped full of antibiotics and medicine and everything else that comes along with it. I mean, it just goes on and on and on. I mean, you can really talk about just the whole system itself. For, the, for them, then at the end, you know, when they're having um, calves, if it's a male, it, it pretty much um, goes to get slaughtered. Um, if it's a female, it goes into the life of servitude as it does as their mother has been through. To only then for all of them to get slaughtered at the end of that process anyway. So this is where you're living a life of hell, if you like, and then still ending up um, getting slaughtered at the end of it, which is just really, really, um, yeah, there's no other word to say apart from just Mm. abhorrent and cruel. So really, that's what I want to see the end of. And I think we just don't need to do that. um, we, We just don't need to do it from multiple levels, but let alone just the the ethical side of treating another sentient being that way is uh, just shouldn't be allowed, period. Before I let you go, I always ask my guests this one final question. If you were stuck on a desert <laughs> island and it was just you and a pig, um, oh, if, you, <laughs> if, you had, if you had a book and a vegan dish and a music artist, who would you take with you and what would you take with you? Oh my gosh, this is a tough question. Plant-based dish. I mean, I'm just a real sucker for just a really great Buddha bowl. It's pretty boring, but like just a really good wholesome. That's my personal like, favorite. <laughs> I love it because it just it gives you everything you need. It's healthy. Mm. You can it can sustain you. So I'd probably be that. Just a yeah, pretty boring. Um, you know, whole food plant based dish. A book. Gosh. I mean, I get pretty bored. I go through a lot of books uh, in terms of I just couldn't read the same book over and over again. So <laughs> I don't know. Um, something that I could download things on and just keep changing books perhaps. 
Um, I really can't answer that question. Um, I have a huge eclectic range of, um, of, of books that I like to read. And what's been like your favorite? Experts. What's, what's been your favorite? Of, uh, of I've been years? through, I mean, I like, I'm going through a phase of sort of psychology right now, okay. but then I went through, I like history. I like psychology. I like philosophy. I like all of those sort of more sort of classical subjects. So I go through really different um, ranges of books at any one point in time. But, you know, The Madness of Crowds is one that I'm reading at the moment from Douglas Murray, um, which just really fascinated me, this idea of, you know, that crowds are not really sensible predictors, I guess, of outcomes. And that really, the whole psychology of people really fascinates me, I guess, the most. So it would probably be something in that realm if there was a book. Uh, and then music is exactly the same. One thing that, about me that <laughs> they used to call me the Renaissance man at Boeing because I've just got so many interests in so many fields and I've got a very artistic side to my personality. I've also got a very hard science and hard math side to my personality. So I'm always in the middle of when people ask me, are you this or are you that? I'm sort of like, I'm sort of a bit of both. You know, I'm sort of right in the smack bang in the middle. Um, and so it can, that extends to music, it extends to literature, it extends to art. <laughs> I really have fascinations in multiple realms. So I can't answer that question either but it'll probably be something in jazz i guess because if there's if there's a if there's a genre of music that just keeps giving it's that because every time you listen to it it's different in my opinion so you'd have a nice jazz playlist of uh of there we go this. yeah there we Amazing. go so a very Best long convoluted answer sorry i didn't answer it more easily but... <laughs> so good oh, amazing well thank you so much for joining us on the pbm podcast david it was a pleasure to hear a little bit more about this exciting technology uh, and i'm really overwhelmed and excited to see what happens with change foods and this section of food technology because i really believe if we can see widespread adoption we will see an end to the dairy industry in our lifetime but yeah fingers crossed we can keep moving forward thank you so much robbie it was a real pleasure speaking with you thanks for joining us everyone i've been your host and this is the pbn podcast we'll be back next week with more food fashion technology animals everything in between 